This week on the podcast, we've got my friend Ron Kitchener. Ron Kitchener is one of the pillars of uh, Canadian country music. Um, he's been a mainstay in the industry, a guy I've looked up to for years. Uh, he's managed some of the most uh, powerful careers of the biggest artists in the format. And uh, actually won manager of the year 14 times in a row, I believe it was. And then uh, when they switched it over to management company of the year, he won that multiple times as well. He's got over 20 CCMA awards uh, on his wall and um, continues to be a powerful manager to this day, uh, working with artists such as Tim Hicks, the Roadhammers, Madeline Merlot, the Hunter Brothers, and many others. It's an honor to have Open Roads recording founder and artist manager Ron Kitchener on this week's podcast. All right, we got my buddy Ron Kitchener on. Ron, you are the purveyor of one of my favorite lines in the business when it pertains to management. You've always said this, as a manager, you can't want it more than your client does, which just reminds everybody that it's it's got to be a, a strategic cooperative approach when it comes to breaking an artist. And um, tell us a little bit about what experience you had that made you come up with that line and realize that that was something that was paramount? Uh, yeah, I think going back, a lot of it has to do with, you know, when you're early in the business, you take on your one client, you go through every exercise of, of effort and mistakes and everything. And then you, of course, you know, realize that, uh, you know, you're not going to survive in this business with one client. So you add to the roster. Next thing you know, you have multiple clients and you have to really value your time when you're spreading your, your time out between clients. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think, I think the real thing is when you've, when you're young, you're on your own and you've got one client, um, and you don't have an assistant and you're working from your bedroom, you are doing everything and you are working hard. You're hustling. You're, uh, you're writing the press releases. You're, 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 you're engaging on every single level. Not, not like you wouldn't be down the road, but the point is you're, you're really probably going deeper than, you know, um, what's really expected. So I think as, as, as more clients kind of came into the fold, I realized that my time could be spread you know, thinly here and that certain parts of the business were, were going to have to um, uh, be shared. And I'm not saying that they'd have to get into my part of the business, but we just have to really, you know, uh, think about where the workloads would be. And, and so there's a little bit of that, but also just with respect to their part of the business, you know, the, the artists have to get, I can do everything to get them to the stage. They have to get on the stage and really deliver and get to the back of the room. And so part of that isn't just doing it, you know, 10 times and feeling it out. It's, you know, all the little bits of work you have to do along the way. And, um, and that involves, you know, not only doing all those shows, but just thinking about it a little bit more and, and, you know, what happens on stage and how's, how's the communication to the audience. And, and it doesn't matter whether your first few shows are with 15 people or, or 500 people at a little small fair and, and, you know, outside of your hometown. Uh, the key is that you have to work hard on every aspect of that. And so that was just a little bit of a mantra that we kind of ran with for a bit. I'm, you know, I'm not going to work harder than you to achieve this. This is your goal. This is your dream. I'm in it as well. I want to achieve all the success that you want uh, with you, but I can't do all the work and you sit around and just wait for your hour, hour and a half set, you know? Right. Right. And at the end of the day, you know, the, them being more, a part of the process also gives them more ownership and with ownership becomes there's more accountability. So you're also fostering them 
to not only step up as an as an artist, but also as a um, as a partner in their career. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Hey, listen, you know, you, you learn quickly, you know, when you move from hobbyist to professional. And I think it's uh, so important that the artist understands all the people involved in your career, all the things that have to happen in the soup, as you say, you know, per, per se, to make it to that next uh, what I call the next rung on the ladder. You know, it's not all the way. You don't want to skip any any steps along the way. Uh, it's important to to understand what the agent does, what the promoters do. You know, the dynamics of a of a live band. You know, a, a crew. And again, sometimes you're starting off with none of that initially. You know, like when I was saying I was wearing the hats, I was the agent and the you know sometimes the odd promoter. Um, but I'd be the manager, the agent. You know, the the record company, the the everything and. Um, uh, it's really important that the artist understands all those, who's doing what and how it works, um, and that you're moving into a professional operation. The first time you do a gig and you get a check at the end of the uh, evening or a uh, bag of, uh, you know, coins or cash or whatever you're going to get, you know, that means you're you're now a professional and you have to act it. Right. I remember uh, the first time we spoke on the phone, it was 1995. I was working at a little radio station in Brooks called Q13. You were setting up a publicity and media tour for Jason McCoy at the time, hot off the heels of uh, it used to be our town. I think it was. This used to be uh, our sure. town. Sure. Right, right. Yeah. So you just put that single out. It was getting some traction. I remember at the time you telling me how you had rented some theaters, promoted your own shows, or you were working towards that at least. It came up in the conversation. And, yeah, you have worn a lot of hats, and you have been at this for – at least 25 years. Is that basically where you got your start was with Jason? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, listen, it, the career goes back into promoting shows in college. Um, right. You know, uh, certainly working on some really interesting way before it's time kind of projects like a, a game show that was tied uh, called test pattern that was tied to much music that I was uh, very much a part of. That was so much fun. Uh, and, you know, in all those all those things, going back, uh, working with some rock bands from LA and taking them across Canada, I did a lot of that stuff. I really didn't have a vision for for country, or didn't have a vision of myself being involved in country music. Um, really, kind of thought I would be in the rock world because that's kind of where my passions lie. Um, and, and at the time, you know, how I got into country music was kind of uh, through a series of events, obviously springboarded from trying to be in the rock business. And one thing led to another and through a series of events, uh, booking bands in school and trying to be a rock promoter in school and ended up at a, a conference in Nashville that just happened to be in Nashville that year. If it was in Denver that year, I might never have touched country music. I have no idea. But because it was in Nashville and all the players at the table, it was a COCA or sorry, a NACA conference. And, uh, and I ended up meeting a, a, a wealth of uh, amazing people, you know, through this very limited um, association of uh, people who are there it's like 30 of us from all over america i was the only canadian uh these guys were all booking you know huge shows and like you know arenas and stadiums at their campuses and i was booking basically my pub in a in a, in a frosh week right and uh but i was there and learned it all and that's kind of that's that was my first taste of country music and um and therefore of course by having a little bit of knowledge in country music you know uh, when the opportunity around Jason came about, it was something I could easily get involved in simply because I had 
you know, I all of a sudden had a little bit, uh, a few more uh, names on the Rolodex from Nashville. And that was, you know, basically the entry into Jason. And then getting involved with Jason was like, yeah, wearing all those hats and, um, uh, you know, just seeing a kid who I just thought, you know, still to this day, I think is one of the most talented individuals on all levels. And if you ever spend time with Jason in terms of his musical appreciation, what he knows and, and just his, his wit and his, um, his talents are legendary. And, um, uh, you know, so, but I, you know, what did I know at the time? You know, I knew a bit, little bit about country music. This kid sang really well. He seemed to be uh, ambitious. Um, so, you know, I, I took a flyer on it and, uh, got involved and we went through a series of, of steps and missteps and, and all those things that you'd expect. And, uh, and that's generally, I would say he, you know, notwithstanding a couple other small projects that we don't need to waste time on. Um, I would say that Jason was certainly the first client of, um, of regard that at least I felt like I could do something beyond local, got him a record deal took him across the country, was able to get him into Nashville, doing showcases, doing all the things that I felt like a real professional manager would have to do. And, uh, and listen, you know, I have to thank Jason every day for the opportunities to, to make piles of mistakes in and around his career. And I think that's kind of critical. And he, hey, listen, he, you know, he was a 20-year-old kid who took a chance on a 21-year-old manager. So, um, you know, you got, you got to respect that. And Jason's uh, so brilliantly creative. He must be throwing ideas at you on a regular basis. How, as a manager, do you steer him back to prioritizing a plethora of ideas that that guy's got to be pushing out, if not on a weekly basis, daily? Uh, yeah. You know, initially it didn't matter. You know, we had all the time in the world, um, you know, to just generate ideas together and, and keep working forward. And, uh, you know, I piggybacked on his ideas. He piggybacked on my ideas. And it was, you know, made made a lot of sense. We've been working together still for all these years. Um, and it's been, it's been wonderful uh, along the way, of course. You know, the, the great thing about um, where Jason, you know, he, he's, you know, like all artists, all artists have their, their challenges, their, their insecurities, their, their this and the that, you know, they all want to, you know, you know, they're, they're making music. They want that music to be appreciated by an audience naturally. And certainly Jason made those steps, but you know, we started hitting the wall when we really felt like we could do something in Nashville and, and Nashville just wasn't ready to, to come around. And the, the, the story was, you know, we kept talking to people in Nashville and doing showcases and we just get so far and just couldn't really seal the deal at the end of the day and uh, very frustrating. And so, you know, you can sit and you can, you know, fold up the tent and go home or you can, you know, say, okay, well, what is it? You know? So I started surveying people instead of asking, you know, Hey, you know, uh, so are you not ready to do the deal? Okay. And you walk away and said, so what's the deal? Like, you know, tell me, give me some feedback, some real honest feedback here. I can take it. I can, you know, you don't have to tell the artist, tell me I'm its manager. So I can, I can make that happen. And, um, uh, you know, we really started become <laughs> funny enough. It became this interesting thing where there's a lot of Canadian artists trying to get attention in Nashville. And, um, one particular person in, uh, came up to me and just, when I was asking these hard questions, he said, you know, they're all clean cut. They're all nice as all get out. And they come down to Nashville and, and you know, want to make it big. And, you know, there's this little thing about, you know, there's a cowboy, you know, you've got artists coming out of Beaumont, Texas and Tulsa, Oklahoma. These are, you know, you know, 
rope riders and whatever, whatever they might be, but there's a little toughness to them. You know, the ladies like that, right? And, you know, these cute boys coming out of Canada, you know, clean shaven and all that may not uh, necessarily appeal. Now, I don't think he was speaking for everybody. He may have been speaking at that moment for two or three Canadians. I'm sure there was a lot of clean faced American boys getting deals. Um, Things were booming at that time in country music. So I always felt like Jason had a chance. Everybody respected his talent. We just couldn't, you know, just couldn't get to that next level. Um, and through that conversation and having it further with Jason, evolved the Road Hammers, which, um, you know, he went and grew a beard, became a little tougher, uh, turned the volume up on the guitars a little bit more, which we knew he could do. He might have gotten pigeonholed into this traditionalist kind of country attitude, but he always had a rock sensibility mm -hmm. to him. Uh, and that was, that was a lot of his brilliance, creating that band and, and piecing that together based on a reaction to his solo career, uh, not with any more intentions than to probably in Jason's mind to say, you know what, screw it, I'm going to go. I'll, I'll do a record, a one-off record with a little more grit, and that's what I'll, and, and he was always, you know, um, he was good that way. And, and you know, and, and same with Born Again in Dixieland, you know, uh, that came about from him and I having a real honest, hard-nosed conversation about where his album was at and where we needed to go. And instead of, again, cowering and going off and being pissed at his manager, he went out and dug deeper and, and found... Um, uh, the attention, I, you know, he went out and wrote that song at you know, whatever midnight or something like that and started it and got it going. And literally 24 hours later, started playing to me, playing that song to me. And I said, that's a game changer right there. And so, you know, that's what you want in an artist and you want them to be able to, to take the real criticism. Nobody else is going to tell them the truth. You manager, you know, everybody in the audience, they're going to come up at the end of the night, even if you have a half, half-assed show that's not the perfect show, what are they going to do? Come and tell you that it wasn't a great show at the autograph booth? No, they're going to tell you a great show. So you're constantly believing that everything's okay. And the one person in the room who's there being the most critical, it's probably the guy who's depend, you know, who's, hey, listen, the bigger you are, the better you are, you know, it's obviously going to benefit me as what as much as, as you. So my job is to give you the truth. And, um, so we've always been good that way and uh, made those progressive steps. And, uh, and, and you know, Road Hammers was, a, was an interesting uh, dynamic. And, you know, interestingly enough, it ended up, uh, he ended up getting an American record deal through, with the Road Hammers. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's, it's almost like a coach dynamic, right? Where you work for the player, but you have to coach that player and make sure they're showing up at practice and criticize them when they're not executing properly. But at the end of the day, you work for them, so it's 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 unique in that role. Now you've got a you've got a management style that's very direct. You know you're very forward. Do you find that depending on your client, you have to nuance your approach? Like you probably don't speak to all clients in the exact same method or language, do you? Yeah, I'd say that. Um, over the years, I've learned. Listen, you know, we all go through our curves of of, uh, you know, I'm learning things to this day, obviously, you know, you know, especially with the situation we're in right now, we're all learning a little bit more, right? But uh, absolutely, you know, you, you get to understand um, the personality of, of your client and, and you work hard. You know, I've kind of always been a little, you know, t tough in my approach. And um, I don't know if it's necessarily the worst thing. I think it's sometimes a good thing. Uh, at least I appreciate that. Not everybody appreciates it the same way. Um, I appreciate that it gets to the point, and I think that's an important thing. Um, I'd like to keep making, 
you know, two feet, for, uh, you know, two steps forward all the time. Uh, you know, I'm not one that really enjoys the two steps forward, three steps back, because that's what happens uh, all too often when you can't, you know, get that communication um, situation together. And uh, so, yeah, I would, uh, I would say that that's just an approach. I know others have that same approach. And I've also known others who uh, have been very successful, you know, complete opposite of that. But I've, you know, I've learned over the years to not be as um, aggressively forward with, uh, right. with things as much. So it all, again, it just depends on, on who and not everybody can handle it the right way. Well, and, and, you know, being direct is a compliment because you're not wasting anybody's time, right? You're getting right to the meat of it. You're, you're taking less of a roundabout approach and making sure that they understand exactly where you're coming from, exactly what the criticism is. But you're right. There are times where, you know, I've noticed that if I, if I approach some of my clients the same way I can be as direct with other of my clients, they just shut down. And if they don't hear you, then it really doesn't matter what you're saying. You know, so it's uh, it's it's great to have that nuanced approach and still find a way to be direct. And somehow you've struck that balance over the years, which is impressive. So let's talk a little bit about the future. You've obviously had incredible amount of success recently here. Tim just went number one with another song, Tim Hicks, with the No Truck song. Madeline Merlot was just recently on Songland. That must have been pretty incredible for her. Like, what an experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's sometimes these wonderful things fall out of the sky and that's what you want. Right. You know, it's like, like sometimes you have to, you know, like I say, you have to really work hard, you know, to be lucky or to get lucky. And um, I think that's, that's what everybody has to appreciate in our business that you never know, because again, of the, you know, the, the multiple dynamics of our business, I think it applies in other parts of the business as well, or other businesses as well. But in our business, you know, there's lots of people that, you know, hey, listen, somebody could benefit from what your artist is doing. Uh, but timing is so cri critical and, and crucial. And uh, listen, our roster and, and clients have had great things happen. You know, sometimes great things happen at the wrong time in their career. Uh, great things happen in the wrong time of the album cycle. Um, in this particular case, we like to think that it was just a nice added bonus to what we were uh, building um, wasn't part of the strategic plan. Madeline had uh, developed, you know, through a bit of a Canadian uh, initial system. You know, I don't advise that today as I might have when she started, but we've been working with Madeline for six and a half years now. So quite a while of developing her. You know, you have to understand that I saw her, uh, knew about her, listened to her, was very intrigued, loved the voice, saw her before she really even played a show. And my thing has always been, I need you to have, go out, play a lot of shows. I need to see you live. I need to see how you feed off of a crowd. Um, you know, that's a bit of an old school approach, but um, that's always the way I've, uh, I've approached artists in the past. I love the live dynamic. I think the live essence of, I think it's a key contributor to the marketing. I think it's it's the essential, you know, if you've got the live thing down, we can figure figure everything else out. Um, Madeline hadn't played a lot of live shows, uh, if any, and, but there was a voice there. There was a charm there. There was something special. So I told her it was going to take a while. You know, you're not, I'm not just going to sign you and take you to Nashville. I said, we're going to go to Nashville. We're going to learn the business. We're going to do the, the steps in Nashville. First time I want you to go down there, explore the town, go to the Opry, go to the hall of fame, do all the things as a tourist, absorb the town. And then the next visit or later in that trip, we'll get to work. And, um, and we slowly, you know, went through those steps and, um, 
and yeah, and uh, you know, to her credit, another another hard nosed conversation. You know, she was writing some songs, and she was thought she was ready to come to Nashville, or, or she was ready to go to Nashville. And I just said, I don't think your songwriting justifies you moving to Nashville. I said. I think you need to get to another place there. And I said, I'm not sure if that's three months or six months or a year, but when you get there, then we can decide because I need you to go to Nashville, not to just hang around like it's first year at college. I need you to go there and work and, and really hit it like you mean something in that town. But let's be you know, half, a couple of steps down the road. Let's not just go there and, and make all the mistakes for a year. So let's get the songwriting together as much as we can do in Toronto and Vancouver and in these places. She moved to Toronto and we had multiple trips to Nashville, um, <clears throat> but it took a little while and she didn't, she didn't like that she didn't think she was ready, but she, she eventually dug deeper and found a way to, to improve that aspect of things. She's continued to have to work on her live show, uh, all those things. But we had the opportunity to do more and more shows as we were releasing music. So um, once we really felt like her songwriting was at a place that I thought that she could be in line to then come into the University of Nashville, as I call it, and get, it, and get in line, and then work your way towards a, a publishing deal, then that would be step one. And step two would be then another year to two year plan to get a record deal. And, you know, without getting into all the minutia of it, we eventually got her down to Nashville, got her working, and she achieved the publishing deal in uh, less than a year and uh, worked out wonderfully. And now, you know, things are evolving and, and getting better all the time in terms of her opportunities. And through that process, it's interesting that, that her biggest opportunity, or at least her biggest spotlight that's been shining in Nashville has been through an effort of her songwriting, not necessarily just her her performance and her um, her vocal, which is of course the key thing that will get her a record deal and will ultimately take her to the finish line. But her um, that song songland opportunity really respects the songwriting process. And now the extra bonus to the bonus of songland was the fact that Champagne Nights by Lady A was ended up ended up being selected as a single, which is the first time that show has ever actually delivered a single versus just a big song that that did well on the the digital services. So, uh, hats off to her, and it's uh, another thing that just you know probably did skip a step on the ladder, but you know allows her to keep uh, progressing. You touched on something earlier, and I think it's a really good point. Um, getting artists these days through the development process when we don't have the nightclub infrastructure that we once had in this country or in the US, probably gonna be way worse after COVID because a lot of clubs are shutting down. So how do you close that gap on getting the artist their 10,000 hours so they can get some mileage on them in front of an audience, understand reading a crowd, reactions, all those things that were somewhat intuitive when bands used to play clubs five, six days a week. That's gone now. So what do you do? Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of our biggest challenges, Jim. But, you know, it's it's a different world on a lot of levels. You know, people are making music in different ways. People are uh, getting their music to an audience in different ways. I'm not saying every genre is the same, but I do think there's a lot of the consumer likes a lot of this, you know, a lot of multiple genres. So, you know, how they deal with that music when they when they hear it. Um, whether they're inspired to go see a show or not or, or whatever, regardless, you know, getting an artist country music certainly has always been 
you know, a big thing live, right? Festivals, performances, the artists are up and down the highways, you know, nonstop as it seems. Um, prior to an artist even getting to Nashville, the Canadian scene has, has always been enough of a challenge just simply because of the dynamic of the, you know, geographic location and population. A lot right. of, um, you know, you don't play a lot between Winnipeg and Regina. You don't play much between, you know, Kelowna and Vancouver. There's just only so many places you can play. So uh, that in its own self has been a challenge. It's, it's other ways. You know, you just, you just, you, you know, you, you just build, you know, build inside their, their confidence, you know, build inside their, um, you know, making sure that the songs really kind of, the songs and the artistry bring something together. You know, just being a singer, I think, I think is important, you know, uh, or, or can be important to some. And maybe that's all at the end of the day that they're inspired to do is just sing and they'll find songs in Nashville. But I want to work with the whole package. I want to work with artists that really get a sensibility to the artistry. They write the songs, they perform the songs. There's some deeper connection to it. And that doesn't mean we can't work with outside songs. But it all leads, as, you're, as to the question, it all leads to what they do on stage. And I think the best thing you can do with the limited opportunities to get there is to write and develop or find songs that are really inside your, your wheelhouse as a personality, who you are, what you want to say, who you want to be, how you want that audience to perceive you through the lyrics, through the music, and, and all those things. And, um, uh, you know, finding your point of difference, I think, is, is, is key. And within that, you know, hopefully those things will lead you down the road. You'll lead, not follow, and you'll be the kind of artist that somebody will be intrigued by develop you, work with you to that next level, and then you'll be in a place where you can play a lot more shows um, simply because you're buoyed by the elevation of your, you know, songs on radio. People will, you know, there's a, confidence can do a lot of things. You know, confidence in an artist um, by having some initial success can do a lot of great things on stage, and, uh, and you're forced to. You have a couple of good hits, and if you've only played two or three shows, it doesn't matter whether you want to be on that stage or not. You're there's going to be demand for you to be on that stage. You better get out there and figure something out. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. If you can't get the ten thousand hours in, at least make sure that you are performing music as an artist that heavily resonates with you. Whether it's something you wrote, something you found, but it's an overused word, but authenticity, right? That's the thing that, that the audience generally is looking for on stage when they see a performance. And, you know, you're right. You can get an artist who's gone through their 10,000 hours, but they were covering other people's music. It never really resonated and none of it felt authentic, you know. And so closing that gap by performing music that resonates with you as an artist and or you've written seems to be a good approach for it. And so that that would lead me to my next question, which is, as you're looking to take on new clients, as you're looking to develop, uh, their ability to have some songwriting chops must be key in, in your decision-making process. Uh, absolutely. I, again, it, it really just comes down to, you know, something that's real, you know, like you said it, authenticity. And I, I know it's overused now, and it, it, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I really mm -hmm. think that an artist who makes a connection to an audience, um, you can have a, momentary hit you can have a two or three you can run on a hit for three years um i think the 
there's something more than that. And I think that's what I'm always striving for in, in the artists that we represent is not really kind of grabbing that momentary hit as much as grabbing the long-term, um, you know, an artist with something a little bit more to say or, or can bring something else to the table. Um, you know, you want something genuine. You want something, you know, <clears throat> Reba McIntyre never wrote a song. It doesn't, to my knowledge, maybe one or two songs, but for the most part, she's just an ing a great deliverer of, of ideas, but you wouldn't think for a second that, that she's not feeling every emotion in those songs. Every, every lyric is genuine to her world. Right. And, you know, she and Tim McGraw to some degree as well. And I think that a little bit of that is missing, you know, in some of the music today, even though most of the people are writing songs. Um, I do think that there's, uh, like, you know, and I think that goes back to 10 years ago when the business was kind of a bit in the ditch, maybe 15 years ago when the business was in challenging times, the label structure, the dynamic of our our business economy adjusted to the point where, you know, the labels started, you know, working with artists that they could get pieces of all levels of income and, uh, um, you know, publishing was one of those. So next thing you know, we've got this this new world of compounded uh, multiple artists or artists who aren't just singers as much, but there are, they're um, songwriters. And I think that's important. And I think that does ha layer, have a layer of authenticity to it. But if your approach to it is just simply writing hit songs and hit songs only, then that works. And that works to some degree. And that sometimes that's all the audience wants in, in some genres. And I think country is kind of leaning itself a little bit more into a, a very pop oriented kind of um, genre. I like the artists that are really authentic. I like the ones that's, that, you know, are a little outside of the box, a little a little on the fence, you know, a little different, a little unique, might come up with something um, really left field. But I'm the willing, you know, and I've done it over the years, I'm willing to go and champion something like that. And I'm willing to put my reputation on the line and to le leverage a little bit of what we've established in the business to go and push something that's a little unique and rather than falling in line with everything else. And, um, and so that's, yeah. So generally you're, you're going to get, you know, the artists that, that write their own songs doing that, uh, going forward, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's country or, or rock, you know, I'm, I'm interested in real storytellers and interested in really genuine artists that, that are doing something unique and, and, and different. And, uh, you know, and that's, you know, having been in the business now, if, you know, a few years. I don't think that I'm at, at any, you know, ending stage in it. I, I feel like there's a lot, a uh, lot more to do, but those are the choices that we'll probably make going forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, George Strait falls into that category as well as a guy who never really wrote anything, but when you hear Amarillo by morning, you believe it, you know, it's not Absolutely. like you're, geez, I wonder if this guy actually ever lived this experience and whether or not he did, he's able to pull it off with some level of, of authenticity. Now, as the environment at, you know, in our business, creatively speaking, becomes more and more focused on the success of singles, production, pop production, as you mentioned, do you think it erodes the fidelity to, to authenticity and to finding material that you resonate with? Because it seems to be one of the concerns I have as a manager is I have a lot of artists coming to me with a folder full of songs going, these are all radio hits. And that's great. I mean, I make money off radio hits, so do you. But my concern sometimes is, or my, my retort to them is, yeah, but are they you? Like, do you feel them? Can you interpret them? Can you message them effectively? Because 
if we build a foundation of radio hits that actually have nothing to do with you, we might get the chart numbers, but we're never going to have the follow through on the live. Do you have that concern yeah. as well at times? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, it comes back to that center point of, of finding unique artists that are saying something different in a, with a different approach. Every five years, thousands of more songs have been thrown into the mix. You know, more songs make up the opportunity for the, the current playlists. Doesn't matter whether it's DSPs or radio. There's only so many songs that can fit into your day. So you're, if you're a, a normal fan spending time um, with things that are current and things that are, you know, what we call in the business catalog, which are more, I would call to the consumer more comforting because it's something that they're know, they know, it's just more, right? So they're just adding more and more and more. So, so, you know, there's only so many ideas. There's only so many chords on the guitar. There's only so many unique ways to say the same thing over and over again. And it's becoming more and more of a challenge to find a song that can cut through in a way that is genuinely not just a hit, but, you know, there's always going to be a hit every week. There's going to be another number one song. Um, how do you find something that really makes a difference? How do you find that one song that just says that right thing, that lyrical wordplay and, or that production element that just absolutely makes you go, Holy crap, right? And I don't know that there's been enough of those in the last little bit. And I'm not so sure if it's, listen, there's some, some incredible artists out there. But again, every year, um, you know, every every part of the business, every genre of the business, whether it's having success or not having success, you know, I, I think when you're more successful, then it's easier to just kind of follow everything, right? So country music's been very successful for, for many years. And I think there's a little, a genuine thought to, you know, as much as everybody will say they want something unique and different and standing out, you know, a lot of people are doing a lot of the same thing. And, um, and and that's working. It's working for a lot of people. And it's a good business model to some, you know. But, you know, to me as a, uh, as a businessman, I, I want to find something that's unique and I want to go and create the next wave. You know, you're always driven by that. Um, you know, you always want to be on top of the, you know, the next Garth Brooks or something, something that just comes out of left field and really nails it. Not just one song, but two songs. And then the identity of the artist just all comes together and everybody goes, Holy crap, I get it now. Right. And, um, uh, it'd be nice to see more of that. Uh, but you know, that's just, uh, the way it is, I guess. Right. And, uh, you know, I think other genres, you know, will probably maybe, you know, there's some genres that aren't as popular anymore that might need to get a resurgence and it'll probably take something like that to really kickstart things again. Right. Now, when you're working on a, on a project with an artist, how many songs are you listening to a week? Oh, uh, we're not as many as I wish, you know, that we probably should just, you know, in current times, but, uh, oh yeah, we go through lots, you know, every artist is different, you know, um, you know, some artists, I've worked with some artists who, you know, uh, without naming them, you know, would literally come towards an album project and, you know, it's like we're going to record 10 to 12 songs and they deliver 12 to 14, right? And so you're literally finding two or three. Fortunately, you know, those talents, you know, had something unique to say and, and everything kind of made sense inside an album. Uh, now, in some cases, you're looking for that one song. Uh, you know, Hunter Brothers go through a lot of songs. You know, they they write a little bit and they and they don't write um, 
they're not they don't perceive themselves as as writers even though they want to do more of that because they want to have a voice in the music that ultimately gets to the public um but they're vocalists they're vocalists and they have a general idea of who they are and what they represent and it goes deeper than just five brothers singing songs there's a, there's a, there's um a lot of different uh depth to to who they are and what we ultimately want to say to the to the um to the universe and what and who they are and what they are they bring in a lot of songs we bring it we get a lot of songs pitched to them and it really has to fit into a certain idea uh that shapes who they are uh so so they would go through a lot more uh tim writes a, a tremendous amount of songs um tim hicks and uh but it always has to keep coming back to again where his brand is at where he believes his audience is at and he he shapes everything and you know and this is what's important all the artists have to again you can go through a lot of songs and if you're sitting there waffling constantly on songs, then maybe you haven't really figured out your identity. Uh, the great news about Tim is he thinks absolutely first and foremost, 100%, not about radio, about his live show. Does this connect to a live audience? Will this work? Where is this song going to fit? This is going to be the eighth song in the set. He's not thinking about where it sits on an album. He thinks about how the, the audience, his audience, the audience he knows, is going to love it and to some degree the audience that doesn't know him is going to discover how are they how can he take this song make it so magical on stage that anybody who's sitting there like this with their arms crossed is going to go yeah this is interesting and if you've ever seen tim it's literally chapters right every song there's not there's no fluff everything has a reason for being there and um and if it's a brand new song he tees it up in a way that everybody's paying more attention and i think that's just a you know the art of a great entertainer. Uh, but part of his art is finding or writing songs that go back to his live show, because that's absolutely first and foremost, everything he's about. Right. He, um, he really was a road warrior band when you signed him. And I think it was 2011 Hamilton or sometime around then. And uh, he was a guy who'd certainly put in his 10,000 hours in the clubs, but, but you could tell as well that uh, his ability to craft, a message that aligned with the energy of his live show was just something that was second to none. Like he knows how to write something that's totally on brand. Yeah. He's a, he's a rare breed. Um, in terms of how he was, we found, we, we discovered, uh, Tim in 2012, you know, Tim had kind of gotten to a point where he was probably, probably the last thing he thought he was going to achieve would be a record deal and, the, and an ability to, to do that. But he was still staying true to, the art of getting out and playing shows. And, and that ended up being the best thing about him was the fact that, you know, not only would he take his band and play a bunch of cover songs on a, on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the few places that would allow you to do that, you know, the Ottawa's and, you know, he's literally going up and down the 401, right. In, in Ontario and not playing much else outside of Ontario at that point. Uh, not not playing original material, but still writing original material, thinking about original material. Um, and literally in, in Tuesdays, instead of being just kind of at home, he'd go off to a little, you know, little tavern in Brantford and literally play for the tip jar. And this is not that long ago. This is less than 10 years ago. How many artists do you know even consider doing that in this day and age? And, you know, his job was you know, can I make enough money in the tip jar um, to pay the gas going home? Now, of course, he could pay the gas going home, but if he could make, 
let's, let me work so hard at this. And some nights there'd only be, you know, 17 people in the place. So his job was to get to them a little bit further. Um, so we knew if we could get the music right and the identity right and all those things, we knew we had a genuine entertainer because he had, it's second nature to him. He had no problem getting up on stage with a band, without a band, in front of a radio station, whatever. That, that part of the puzzle was not going to take too long in terms of our, our artist development. Um, getting the songs right to appeal to a, you know, a guy who was no long, wasn't 21 years old, um, but had moved on. He had even had his first couple children at that point. You know, the last thing he needed to do was get a record deal and start, you know, taking the, you know, dealing with the pressure of the record business and, and what we had in store for him. But he's been a trooper. He's a hardworking guy, but that's his, that's his dynamic. That's where he comes from. He comes from a hardworking, working class family. He's in a working class town. Um, you know, he knows what he has to do and there's nothing that you can ask him to do that he won't do. Um, or, you know, he's very in tune with, with working hard and getting to his audience and, uh, um, it makes for great artists. And, uh, at the end of the day, he may not pursue, you know, the opportunities that, you know, might be there in, in the U S but, you know, we've got other things that we're doing for him and, um, you know, taking him to other parts of the world and just, you know, not trying to fit into something, just basically saying, here's who you are, here's who you want to, you know, this is who you are, let's just take this to the places that care for this. And, you know, as, as you know, of course, America is a whole different uh, um, battlefield in terms of opportunities and in, in getting through the gatekeepers. Uh, but there's other places in the world that can appreciate Tim for who he is. Right. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the process of like a, a stand-up comedian, like a Dave Chappelle or a Kevin Hart who works arenas on weekends and stadiums. And then during the week, sometimes they just pull into a club uh, unannounced, go up and do a set just to stay sharp. Sounds like Tim sort of uh, adhered to that strategy in the early days. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, creatively, you have someone like Jessica Mitchell, who has incredible appeal, but is a totally different artist. And what is it about her that made you go, I'm in? Um, just, you know, uh, jaw-dropping talent, you know, um, not only a voice, but just, you know, like a real depth of sensitivity in an artist. You know, again, you want, you're talking raw authenticity. You know, that's Jessica all day long. You know what I mean? Um, She's a real deal artist, you know what I mean? Like it, it, like everything wears on her. It's just, it, you know, but at the same time, that's, you know, you, you want that, that comes with with the positives and that comes with negatives. But at the end of the day, um, you know, working, when, when you're dealing with an artist who you know can go in a room and whether it's co-writing or performing or, or just meeting somebody for the first time in the industry, I can almost guarantee uh, with, rare exceptions that I'm going to hear back from that person saying, wow, what a treat, what a talent, you know, what, you know, there's just something really special there. At the end of the day, you know, um, special authentic talent, you know, is probably not going to make too many compromises. You know what I mean? They're going to do what they do. And that doesn't always mean it's uh, a race for the, the top of the hip parade, right? It's, it just means that they're going to do what feels right to them inside whatever moment, you know, they don't, they don't write to a plan. They, they just write with how they feel. And when that happens, uh, you get something really raw and natural. And sometimes that works to masses. Sometimes that works to a very smaller audience. Um, 
So we don't know, you know, like, you know, she's had some, she's now had a Celine Dion cut, a Trisha Yearwood cut um, as a writer. They've appreciated what she writes. Uh, you know, the worst thing that could happen for Jessica as an artist trying to make it is that she'll continue to fall through the cracks, which means she'll never be country enough. She'll never really be pop enough. She'll never really, she's not even really an Americana alternative route. She's just who she is. So her job is to continue to do that. And my job is to figure out where, where the audience is. And, um, uh, you know, she'll, she'll continue to make great music and we'll continue to find some people that, uh, appreciate who she is and what she's all about. So, yeah, she's, yeah, I think she's, I, a, she's a real deal. I think you touched on a really interesting point with someone like her too, because she's, you know, artists have this, this innate capability to take the external emotion of the chaos of emotion that we can all feel and, and boil it down and present it in terms that we can all understand. And, um, and she has this incredible ability to do that, to take chaos of emotion, whether it's heartbreak or, or something else and boil it down into something that's very digestible for the rest of us. But being that that artists are so emotionally driven and these days we live in a, in a world where you can immediately access the world through social media. As a manager, how do you guide and discipline the artists on their outward facing brand as it pertains to socials? Because you do want that to be authentic. You do want it to be them, but you also don't want it to work at cross purposes against their overall goals. So what, what types of conversations do you have internally about those things? Yeah, I, I, again, you get back, everything to me gets back to a central brand purpose. Um, and, and when I say brand, I'm not talking a exploitive marketing term. I'm talking something that's genuine and authentic. It's like, where's, where's your foundation? Where's your center point? Who are you? What do you want to say? Everything from that point, whether you're on stage or whether you're, you know, um, dropping a, uh, a tweet or a, a Facebook post, it still has to keep coming back to that. And listen, you know, artists can get, you know, like again through their sensitivities and 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 you know, if they're having a rough day, sometimes they just need the attention of an audience. And um, social media can be very distracting that way in terms of this need for that audience interaction. And so you just have to be continually careful about what you say and what you do and, and how people might perceive that. At the same time, you have to be real, right? So if you're if you're writing about a particular song and you're not you know, um, consistent with that in terms of any kind of messaging, if there's a particular song that says something and people are talking about that, then you have to be genuine to that. And, but, but again, you're hoping that at the end of the day that the efforts are very natural um, where you just want to make sure that people, uh, you know, don't abuse um, the opportunity to communicate with an audience, to stay inside the, the, the musical bubble. Um, at the same time, you don't want to handcuff your artists either, you know, you, like to the point where they can't do anything without thinking about how they want to, um, you know, purpose a thought and uh, to their audience, because to me, that's still part of the art. Nowadays, you, you, as much as you want to avoid it, older guy like me, I, you know, social media sometimes is just a little outside of my wheelhouse. Um, but fortunately, we have some great people on staff that, that deal with things like that and, um, and know where to, you know, where those things touch. And, it, and it's part of a, a, of a business effort. You know, you need to continue to keep your, your audience engaged. At the same time, you'd still want it to be genuine uh, 
you know, and, you know, Jim, maybe if I had different artists that were, you know, really about the, you know, that being such a, uh, a tied in thing to their um, exposure, uh, maybe it'd be different, but I, I feel like most of the artists have a genuine approach to their brand that it, that it doesn't seem to be as much of a problem. Um, uh, but as far as conversations with them, they know, you know, just, just to stay real, keep things, you know, in, in a, in a good solid place at the same time, you know, social media is, is a huge part outside of touring. In my opinion, it's kind of touring social media. And then there's, there's some other efforts inside the marketing, but mark, you know, social media is now not so much just a, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a, a thing that you deal with inside your community. It's a big part of the marketing mix uh, because that's where people are. That's where people are engaged. That's where people are reading about things. It's just how you handle it, I think, is all in how we creatively can get navigate around that with the team and, uh, and the artist. So uh, artists nowadays have to be a little more aligned to that. doesn't mean they're all great at it. Some of them are really good at it. Some, some of them, it just comes naturally. Uh, I find the younger ones, it comes naturally. Others, they have to kind of be guided a little bit. Yeah, they grew up with it. So it's a totally different dynamic for anybody who's in their 20s, right? They, they're they used to being on it. They're used to presenting themselves. Generally, generally, I would say in a manner that's authentic, but they also know how to maximize the attention. You know, um, it's interesting to see it happening on different levels. If you look at Kanye West, you know, like there there's a guy who does get the <clears throat> art right, but he's always clamoring for attention on socials. And, uh, you know, recently, I think you probably saw this, he announced he's running for president, you know, and, and it's hard for me as an industry person and maybe you too to not look at that and go, does that just mean he's dropping a new album? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, listen, it's, it's a different dynamic, you know, but even if you go, and I'm, a, I'm a student of the, the history of the business. I love it. And I'm, I'm sure you are as well, you know. I love reading stories about the 1970s Warner Brothers group. And listen, nobody's in this business. We can't sit back and think that, you know, this business business hasn't been about massive exploitation and doing everything you can to get a little further down the road, right? You know, how you achieve success at radio, uh, all those things. Uh, some of them are, are really, you know, purposeful plans and some of them go the other way. But you're dealing with characters. You're dealing with larger, you know, you're, you're dealing with artists, right? Artists don't subscribe to the, the same, you know, day-to-day um, -day fundamentals that maybe you and I would think about. And that's why they're artists. And that's why we adore them. And that's why we want to work with them. I want to work with a real genuine artist. You know what I mean? I want to work, you know, yeah, every once in a while you have to rope them in. Every once in a while they're going to go outside of, off, you know, the outside of the... Um, uh, the fence, um, but that makes them who they are. Now, at the end of the day, some of them are very crafty in, in their approach to, you know, um, I'd rather them do it genuinely in a, in a way that, that, you know, um, adhere, you know, basically uh, aligns with their creativity and their artistry, you know, rather than feeling like they're, they're just they're good marketers, right? And sometimes the artist is the best marketer, of course. But uh, through social media, it's it's really all in how you perceive it. And um, but it's a platform. And if you've got all the people listening to everything you say, then you've got an opportunity to say whatever you want. And some are going to be really good about it, and some of them are going to make millions just 
you know, mentioning a brand name and others are going to go and run for president. So uh, it's it's the crazy wild world of our business. And if we didn't have all that, then we'd be we'd be lesser for it. Yeah. And, and I think, too, like. Artists have this platform, they have this voice, they understand that they're able to influence people through their art, but probably through the how they live the rest of their life as well. Um, it's just as a manager, sometimes making them aware of what's at stake. You know, I always tell my artists, listen, it's your platform. And, and much like you, I always try and draw them back to like, what's our overall goal with this. But I also understand that sometimes artists evolve. They want to become a little bit more um, inspirational. They want to become a little bit more of an activist in a certain space. And it's just about weighing out the consequences of that and, and deciding whether or not it's going to be effective. It's like sometimes you're right to come out on a certain side of an issue, but you have to understand that there's going to be consequences. If you're going to come out as a conservative in an election period or as a liberal, you're going to piss off 50% of your audience. Whether or not you mean to, whether or not you intend to, that's just going to be part of it. Yeah. And, and listen, if you've got a community and, and you want to express your opinion to that community, you know, whatever, you know, some artists are just going to have that, that, you know, open runway uh, to do that. And people may not get in their way and that could cause them trouble. It could elevate things. Who, who's to say, right? People are listening to celebrities. People are listening to uh, artists that they follow. It's just part of the culture of our world right now. Sometimes we'd, I'd rather listen to, you know, a, a celebrity's opinion uh, versus somebody, you know, even in politics who might have a more educated opinion. But for some reason, that's entertainment to me is listening to, you know, my favorite artist's opinion on it. Do they all need to? Well, some of them do. Again, does it come back to the music? Does it come back to the genuineness of the artist and who they are? I think people have to believe that what you've done musically and what you've said in media, like traditional media, and how you've built yourself up to a certain place justifies how you extend your social media, to, first and foremost, to your community, and then how you might use it in a way to get a larger audience. And again, I, I think everybody's going to be a rule breaker to some degree. Um, maybe there shouldn't be rules when it comes to social media. Obviously, there aren't if you really look at the wider scape of the world. But um, uh, yeah, listen, uh, it's also, you know, depending on the times, depending on what's going on in the world, you know, sensitivity can, you know, and, and doing the wrong thing in the wrong place when you have no place to say it can put yourself in a very awkward place. And you don't want to work hard for 10 years and have the wrong message get out there because of some ignorance or some um, offhandedness or some, you know, misguidedness or whatever you want to call it and, uh, and ruin your career. Right. And, you know, Ultimately, great artists change the, the world through their art. If you think about Bob Dylan with his song, The Hurricane, about Reuben Hurricane Carter and how that song initiated enough lawyers to take interest in the case to ultimately exonerate Reuben Hurricane Carter of a, um, of a murder charge, which he was already serving time for. I mean, that's an example of an artist at Bob Dylan's level changing the world, changing that man's life. And, and I know social media wasn't around at the time, but he didn't do it with a post. He did it with a song. And so that's often a good reminder for artists who are approaching activism, too. It's like, yes, you can make a post, but is that enough? 
is there something more that you can say about this in a much more powerful uh, uh, platform or format, right? Um, I want to bounce back uh, to some of your history. So you were one of the first major independent labels in Canada that really took country seriously. You launched Open Road Recordings. What was the impetus behind that? Because up to that point, you were managing artists. You'd done a little booking with Lesperance. You promoted some of your own stuff. But what was it that made you draw a line in the sand and go, okay, somebody's got to go full bore in Canadian country music, and that somebody is going to be me? Uh, yeah, it's as simple as that. It was um, managing two artists up to that point. Uh, both of them had been released uh, by Jason. We had signed to MCA. Doc Walker, I did a distribution deal through MCA turned into Universal. Um, Randy Lennox and I uh, had gotten on very well right from the beginning of you know the whole how we got the Jason McCoy deal in the first place, which is an interesting tale in its own right. Um, but uh, in doing so, we built a great relationship. Uh, I had managed these artists and I, it, back to wearing all the hats, you know, I was writing the press releases. I was doing it all. I was going in and out of Nashville. I was building that network. Um, I'm not saying that there wasn't a good scene at the time. There was a scene for sure. I might've been a, a younger, fresher voice and fresher face. I look on it now, I can look back to that era and realize who was who was in the in the pool at the time. That, that didn't mean that there weren't young people trying and, and striving, but you know, I was an ambitious young person. Again, I came out of a rock and roll, a rock and roll foundation, just the music I loved and where I expected to be. The minute I thought I was gonna be in the music business, I never thought for a second that it wouldn't be rock and roll because that's what I lived and breathed and, uh, and appreciated. When I sensed the opportunity on country, it, country had started shifting a little bit. There was a little bit more guitar. There was a little bit more production. So there was some of that stuff was was a little bit becoming a little bit more in my wheelhouse. Um, Jason was quite a traditionalist. When you look at the the wider scape of it all, even though he went on to do the Road Hammers, um, but he had a traditional country voice and played traditional country songs as far as I was concerned, uh, how I perceived it at the time. And my second act was Doc Walker, who, you know, one person will re uh, remain nameless from CMT at the time, more or less said, uh, great band, you'll probably do well with them live, but you'll never get them on radio. They're too much of a rock band. But, you know, maybe my rock, rock background appealed, whatever it was, they appealed to me a lot more. I felt, again, there was an opportunity with those guys. Not only were they going to get out and tour a lot, but they were also um, had a little extra, again, turning up the guitars a little bit. Nobody had really done that as much, but it was starting to happen. So, you know, again, belief in the band, belief in the, in the, in the process, young, ambitious, going to the wall, working 24-7, all those things combined. So there I had two acts. Um, doing a lot of the work, not that MCA wasn't attentive to, to what I was doing. I was, listen, I was bugging them all day long. I didn't feel like the, the guy doing the country stuff that I didn't have a place. I was bugging them in Toronto. I was there. I was on the road with the acts, doing everything I could and realized at the end of the day that, you know, Toronto being the central spot, you know, it was like as if country music was kind of coming out of, um, uh, New York in America. There's so much going on. So they're they're working a Jason McCoy record for a second, but then they're also working Tragically Hip and the Headstones and and all these things. The same person. 
So they really couldn't wrap themselves around it. And while there were some good independent labels, um, they may have waned a little bit or whatever. And it just it just seemed like a really good opportunity. Um, when I started the label, my intentions were not, you know, and maybe it, it bit me a little bit later, um, but I, I got around it and I have it all now. But uh, at the time, I kind of wanted to partner and not, I wanted to keep management and label separate. So I literally had a management office and a label office. And, and I partnered with a company that, that um, provided me the services. And I just more or less said, okay, here's who I want to sign. Here, I'm going to set the marketing tone and you guys kind of do the rest. And so that was it. And sometimes I'd go up to that office a couple days a week and then the, I'd stay in the management office the other days. And that was the plan. And it was, and I wasn't going to put everybody on my management roster on that label. It, you know, I really desperately wanted to launch that label, not with a Jason McCoy or a Doc Walker. In in the end, I did launch it with, with Doc Walker. Uh, we were close to a couple other artists and we just, in the end, just didn't feel like they were ready. And Doc Walker had delivered a brilliant record at that point. So it was like, okay, we've got to go. And then, of course, the second record was Jason. And then we eventually got into the, the Wilkinsons and, you know, a few other artists and, and eventually Johnny Reed. And, and, and eventually the, the label really never, never, um, uh, it just kept going, like right from the get-go. Like we, we came out of the gate real strong with, with uh, Doc Walker. And at that point, it was, it was game on. So I think there was a lot of attention to a new, fresh label. We had a good marketing approach to it. We had some some artists i had already uh, been around the industry a few years so i got to know, know a lot of people i knew where all i knew all the radio folks i knew everything so it was just good timing good timing on my and, part and, and and we stayed you know funny enough i was surprised that it took so long for the majors to eventually get in so we really had a lot of room there for for many years before um it's like it is today where it, it's kind of and you know this, you've been around as, as long as I have, at least watching and seeing everything and being a part of it. And, and uh, yeah, uh, it's probably, what, you know, fourfold, fivefold now in terms of what there was compared to now. Um, so I'm not saying it was easier. I'm just saying that, you know, we had a lot of room at radio. We had a lot of room outside of a lot of things. And, um, and for the longest time, even Universal, they were my distributing partner, but they would, um, I was technically viewed as their, as their country partner for a long time. And then eventually they, they got into distributing more country labels as the, the genre grew. So, I, you know, I'm not saying it was, you know, we, we elevated anything, but I'd like to think that we stirred the pot enough and started developing it to the point where the majors started saying, hey, let's, let's get into this genre. It's starting to explode a little bit and let's, uh, let's not let Kitchener have it all. So you also um, planted a flag in Canada for big machine recordings and mm -hmm. you were boots on the ground for them for a long time up here. What did that deal look like and how did it come about? Um, worked very well. Um, it, it came about, it's interesting because Scott Borchetta, um, wonderful executive, uh, great guy. Uh, he had started a label with Toby Keith and him and Toby had basically started this this independent label, but you know, obviously elevated by the by tying in with Toby, who was of course a household name at that point, and still riding a lot of waves of success. So, so they had established that, and that was at a time where I was six months into having established um, 
uh, boots on the ground in Nashville. Keep in mind, I had been going back and forth. Nashville was literally every month spending time down there. Uh, hotels or, you know, sleeping on people's couches for years and then eventually getting to a point where I said, okay, I need to go and establish a presence down there. But I didn't want to establish a management company with a bunch of um, uh, Canadian artists. I didn't want to wave a flag. I didn't want to be the consulate, um, which is ultimately what happens is then every Canadian who comes to town comes and says hello, which is fine. Lo lovely, lovely thing. But uh, it was important that I had established. So I established it through a, a publishing endeavor and that allowed me to get an office and be right on music row. And at that point, again, we had uh, built enough you know, um, business, I guess, in, in, uh, in Canada through our management clients. And I felt like this was the time to take that leap and to really go and establish ourselves and through publishing, ultimately, um, you know, start using the publishing as an access point to the management world within six months of doing that. Um, and having been connected through a pile of people. By that point, I knew, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the town in Nashville by, by my subsequent trips. So, um, but I didn't know Scott very well. And somebody I did know who knew him, once he, once he established that label and they were a few months in, I said, I wanted to go meet him. There's something intriguing about Scott. So I took a meeting with him to just basically do nothing more than to tell him about my label uh, and to tell him about a band or two that I ha happened to be working with. And it was really nothing more than that. Um, we met at four o'clock in the afternoon and I think about seven o'clock I finally got out of there and we had an amazing conversation. We realized that we were very much aligned in terms of our beliefs of, you know, he came out of a rock and roll background. We both loved, we probably talked more about rock and roll than we did about country, but um, it, it was, you know, there was still a lot of business belief and belief in country. And, it, and the, the great thing, and I'm not sure anybody feels like they're truly an insider, but Scott's always worked very well as um, being, even though he's in there and he knows everybody, he kind of works very much as an outsider. And I like that appeal to him. Um, so anyway, we just hit it off. And uh, even in that same meeting, he told me about, you know, this young girl that uh, he was about to, you know, put some music out maybe in a year or so, played me some music. So we just really hit it off. And through that, I started pitching him the Road Hammers. Uh, we came very close to a deal with the Road Hammers. Um, but in the end, he ended up getting so busy with a bunch of things. And somewhere in the whole process of it, we were trying to, you know, get open road to take over Big Machine in Canada and sign the Road Hammers, and it was going to be this perfect thing. Um, the the unfortunate part was I'm cutting the deal on the Road or sorry, cutting the deal on Open Road and establishing that. At the same time, I'm expecting this deal to happen with the Road Hammers offer and everything. And then he just got busy and he called me one day and said, man, I, you know, if you can wait a year, six months to a year, I can do the Road I just can't do it right now. And it just was like, oh my gosh, this is a bad situation. So, um, and we had just kind of started the... Uh, outlining the idea of releasing um, Big Machine product through Open Road back in Canada, and I would be his label um, partner. And uh, so I was just like hung up the phone and thought, okay, this is, puts me in a bit of a bind here. I now, this band who thinks they're going to be signing with uh, Big Machine uh, are no longer there. So fortunately, uh, I dug in, got to work, worked hard, and 48 hours later, I got a deal. I wasn't going to call the band to tell them this until I, I had this information. So um, it was kind of a situation where, uh, you know, I basically held off the information 
found another partner. So when I called the band and said, okay, good news, bad news, you know, or here's, I'll start with the bad news. It doesn't look like Big Machine is going to come together. Good news is I have a meeting with you or, or a meeting for you guys, four o'clock, you know, here with this other label that had just started Montage at the time. And it just worked out great. And they loved the band and we ended up signing a deal with them. And then I went back and of course put Open Road out through uh, through Big Machine. And then we, we worked with Big Machine for about a year before we put Taylor out. And um, uh, it was good because that really uh, added another layer to everything I was working on. The difference was I was down in Nashville trying to build a management company and now I'm representing this label and within a year things were really exploding with Taylor. So it's put me in a position where I was spending a lot more time dealing with the label and launching. We never expanded our team. I didn't go and hire 15 people because we were selling all these these records. We stayed at, kept it lean and mean. I focused, I dug deep and um, and we stayed with it, but we ultimately did add some people and, and it ended up being a great partnership. But uh, listen, we knew that that, that wasn't going to last forever. Taylor was just getting so huge and it wasn't long before, um, uh, you know, our subsequent deals. And Scott was very transparent with me through the whole thing. And uh, ultimately it came down to the fact that, you know, their, their label was distributed around the world, ex Canada, uh, you know, and, eventually somebody was going to catch wind of that and figure it out. So he, he did a great job. Scott's a, a, a great friend and in uh, a, um, a very strategic uh, businessman. Really uh, smart of you to pull that situation off with Scott to open yourself up to new conversations, get yourself in new circles, but also deliver a U.S. label deal for your client who you had hoped or promised or had assumed they would get it at that point. And I think that's, I think that's another great attribute to have as an agent or a manager. It's like don't take a problem to your client unless you've got somewhat of a ready-made solution in your other hand. Yeah. Well, listen. Again, sometimes the stars align. Like I say, some sometimes you you know just work hard, and every once in a while you get lucky, right? And that just happened to be one of those situations where I was in a bind. Um, but you know, listen. Uh, all managers will have all these kind of stories over the years. If you stay in this business long enough, um, if you can survive in this business long enough, uh, you eventually will cross bridges and paths that you will ultimately have to deal with things like that. And and you want to have those stories. And, and anybody who's been around the business for as long as we have will have interesting stories of the day something happened or didn't happen or was on the on the rails. And you don't know how these things can work out or not work out. You never know exactly how close you are to something. I don't know, you know, Jason McCoy might've gotten that deal um, on his third showcase in Nashville after when we were getting closer and closer and the road hammers might never have existed. Would that have been good? He might've put one single out like most of the Canadians at the time and, and you know, basically retreated back to Canada and, and maybe got into something else because he's brilliant and could do almost anything. Um, you just don't know how it's all going to work out. So, you know, uh, at the same time, he might have gotten that deal and it turned into the next biggest thing in the world. Like, it's just, it's hard to say. And this business is so, um, it's like the my pyramid concept where you're, there's a lot of people down below. And as you get further and further up, there's less and less people because the pyramid obviously gets smaller uh, or the tip of the pyramid. And you have to deal with all the loopholes and deal with the adversity as you go up and up and up and up to towards that top. And, you know, it takes more than just great talent 
as you rise. You're you're competing on different levels, and now you're talking about hair, like fractions of hairs that make the difference between somebody who ultimately ends up being, you know, uh, headlining stadiums and somebody who, you know, gets out of the business. There's it's just a, a fraction of of a percentage point or whatever you want to call it. And I really believe in that. And I think it's just a matter of timing, luck, people around you, you know, pieces of the pie that just all come together at the right time. You were writing the right music at that right time, or you were singing the right music, or you showed up in the right room. Uh, you know, the Garth documentary is is so telling of that. I'm sure you've seen it. It's just such a great story and such a fabulous tale of a guy who's a genuine person who just, you know, turned into, you know, not just the biggest country artist in the world, probably one of the biggest artists, you know, bar none, period. Um, you know, certain things just happen. But then you got to have all these other little things, right? You've got to have all these little attributes that just make you, you know, so real and genuine. And then when you get to that next level, taking those chances and, you know, those risks and, and being willing to do some of those things, knowing that you could get your ass kicked on it. But if it turns great, it's it's a tenfold move up the next level, right? So it's a wonderful business in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is very crazy for sure. Well, what's next for you, Ron? Uh, I think it's uh, obviously the times we're we're in right now. Obviously, is uh, you know somewhat challenging, but that's not, that's also you know again you've got to look at these as an opportunity, right? You know, uh, whether you're pivoting or you're or you're just using the time to your best advantage. You know, I've been running and gunning for, for many years. So it's nice to kind of, you know, breathe a little bit more. And I think that's good for not just me, for a lot of people, not only in our industry, just the, you know, people in general, at the same time, we don't need this to go on too long. Um, so now it's, it's a matter of, of, of seeing how, how different passions come into play. Uh, I never expected that I would just do this and this only. For, for for the rest of my life. Having a pause gives me a chance to maybe move a little quicker on some other things that I've been thinking about. But, you know, I've been thinking about some of this for five or six years, so it, it's just a matter of doing it and, and guiding into some other things. So, you know, I'm content with, uh, with where the roster is at. I like where we're at. I need to, you know, challenge some other people on my team to maybe take some things to, to other levels on their own without me kind of being hands-on everything. I don't have to manage everything. Um, and start working on the, the things that really excite me. So, you know, personally, professionally. And, uh, and that's, I think that's kind of where it's at. But, you know, I've got a lot of great ideas um, that, uh, well, ideas that, are, that feel great in the moment. So now it's a matter of how do they execute? How do we, how do we move them forward? And uh, as long as you're turning ideas and you've got good energy to, to get up every day and, and work hard, um, you never know what might happen. The best, years, the best days might be ahead. Well, we've been at this for over an hour. Ron, I loved it. Thank you for doing this. I enjoyed it too. I'd love to have you back on again. Let's make that happen. Let's do it. All the best with this, Jim. Good okay. to chat with you. Thanks, yep, bye. Okay, see ya. Big thank you to Open Road Recordings and the man Ron Kitchener himself from RGK Management for joining us on the podcast this week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Always love getting a chance to get in depth with Ron. Uh, next week we are going to feature Carmen Choney on the podcast from MDM Recordings. Really looking forward to that, so make sure you tune in.